Everybody hear me okay? Hello? All right. How is everybody tonight? Good. Good. Um, let's see if I can do this without knocking down the podium tonight, uh, without shrinking it down to my size, I guess. Um, tonight is going to be a little bit different than, than what you're used to with the blessing of Pastor Jeff. Um, as he asked me, I think I explained to everyone on Sunday, as, as Jeff asked me to fill in for both Sunday and, and Tuesday, uh, he, he gave me free reign. He basically said, do anything you want to do. And, you know, that is a blessing on one hand, but I, I found it much more of a curse, to be totally honest with you. Because when you're dealing with a group of people that are being taught by Pastor Jeff, um, they have pretty high standards. They have pretty high standards. So as I prayed through this and as Jeff and I actually discussed it, um, I I thought about what what do I have in my life that that I'm truly passionate about, that I really believe that that God has pressed on me to get a message out about. If I had one last opportunity to speak to people such as yourselves, what would I say if I had one last thing and I was going to leave it? A, a legacy for my children, and as many of you know, God has pressed on my heart um, a true, um, a true desire or a, a curse again in, in the political arena. Now, nobody get up and leave. I'm not going to get political tonight at all. Um, I am going to get historical. You see, we are at a very perilous time as as a world. And even more so, hitting close to home as a country. We are more divided than we've ever been. We are more angry than we've ever been. But in all of that, there's hope. Because our God is in control. And we forget that sometimes. You know, we forget that we serve a God that is, was, and will be. God is consistent. We're not. God hasn't changed. But I'm going to ask everybody to kind of forget everything you were taught in history school, in history class throughout school. Because as I'm going to kind of play out for you tonight, it's been changed. And it's been changed intentionally by those people who would like to, su- to supplant God, to replace God in our culture. Ephesians 6 talks about how we, we war not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers in heavenly places. Daniel 10 talks about how there, the, the, he, he was talking about the prince of Persia and how the angel couldn't come to Daniel's defense because the prince of Persia uh, was, was holding him up. There is absolutely a spiritual aspect to everything that we're doing. And I would argue, and not just me, I think the documentation I'm going to share with you tonight proves that the United States of America is unique in history. Going all the way back to its discovery, um, to the way we were established, and, and eventually to really the early ninth or the early 20th century, the early 1900s, we've only changed sincerely in the last 50 to 60 years, although there were always people trying to get us to change. Just the church stood in the way. The people of God stood in the way. 
We don't stand in the way anymore. I don't know if you guys noticed, but we live in a culture with, with babies being killed on demand. And we have, you know, we have people fighting that fight. But if we stood up as the church, how could it ever happen? Somebody has to explain this to me. Where are we? And I include myself in this. This is not, this is not in any way to castigate anyone in particular. How is it possible if the people of God actually access the power of God that is available to us according to the scriptures that this is taking place in the year 2011? That's just one example. They're trying to destroy the family. They're, we, Pastor Jeff talked about it six weeks ago, give or take, maybe two months ago, when he was talking about it with his attorney, for those of you who were there, for those of you who weren't, his attorney, who's helping set up the 501c3 for here at the church, talked about how he believes in his lifetime he will see pastors being locked up for preaching the Word of God. Can someone explain to me how we got to that place in the United States of America? A country that was founded, I'm going to show you, by God, for God, for His glory, not the glory of people, the glory of God. It's all in the history books. This is all documented. They're just trying to take it from us. And what I'm hoping to do tonight is not get a bunch of political activists. That's not my goal. What I want you to do is I just want you to prayerfully consider the fact that you will stand before Jesus Christ at judgment, as we all will. And you can say, I didn't get involved because of X, Y, and Z. And when Christ looks at you and He says... Do you believe that I created you? Yes. Do you believe that I placed you in that exact time, in that exact moment? Yes. Then why is it that I placed you in a country unique in all of creation and you told me you didn't want to get involved? In 1504, Christopher Columbus, going all the way back to Christopher Columbus, he wrote in a book and he stated... I prayed to the most merciful Lord about my heart's greatest desire. It was the Lord who put into my mind the fact that it would be possible to sail from here to the Indies. There is no question that the inspiration was from the Holy Spirit. Okay, So now we're talking about 1500s, Christopher Columbus prays, boom, God inspires. Is, I mean, is there any sort of, of scriptural foundation for that sort of inspiration. Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. You see, God had a plan. And, and it started back with Christopher Columbus, at least according to what he believed. And he set out to do something that no one had ever accomplished. And it was crazy. I mean, you have to think about it in, in the context. And it had never been done. And he just felt, according to what he wrote, that God was telling him to do it. So he did it. He just did it. And lo and behold, he discovered America. Now, we're going to fast forward a little bit. And I'm going to try and make this not too dry because there's so many facts that I want to get in so that everyone understands that this isn't Brett just giving opinion. This is historical documentation. But at the same time, I don't want to put you all to sleep. It is late. So... You get to the 
1620, the Mayflower Compact. For those of you who don't understand, the Mayflower Compact was the first formal documentation written by, by the Puritans that came and discovered America. Okay? And what it was saying, it, it, many people call it the precursor to the United States Constitution. It was a very simple set of laws. And it read like this. In the name of God, amen. We whose names are underwritten, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign Lord King James, by the grace of God of Great Britain, France and Ireland, King Defender of the Faith, etc., having undertaken for the glory of God and advancement of the Christian faith and honor of our king and country. Notice, it's very important historically what order they put that in. They were actually putting themselves in danger by putting anything above and beyond their king. But knowing this, again, they said, for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. We all know, I would think, the struggles that uh, the Puritans went through at that time. That those who came over on the Mayflower, it was dreadful. Winter's dreadful. But God provided. A few years later, you had what's called the Constitution of the New England Confederation. Yet again, another precursor to our Constitution. It was written on May 19, 1643. And it says, Whereas we all came to these parts of America with the same end and aim, namely, to advance the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and to enjoy the liberties of the gospel thereof with purities and peace and for preserving and propagating the truth and the liberties of the gospel. So now... We're really setting the stage. These people were here for one main purpose. They fled religious persecution and they came to a land where they would be able to further the gospel as they knew it. One of the great leaders of our time is called the father of uh, our country, George Washington. George Washington was a man of such incredible faith. There's a story that's told and I'll paraphrase it for time purposes, but there's a story that's told about George Washington in the French and Indian War. And he was recruited because he was a surveyor, and he had actually retired. He was 23 years old, and he was retired. And they, yeah, a little different time. And he had surveyed much of the landscape of what was then the colonies. And the, the war between the British and the French and the Indians was taking place. So he basically got brought out of retirement because he knew the land. And they went and they were going to, they were basically taking Fort Duquesne. Washington had lost Fort Duquesne prior to that. He saw it as an opportunity to kind of, to get things back. So as they were going to, to take Fort Duquesne, and I'm giving you a very short version of this, bottom line is they were ambushed. And there was 1,459 men who advanced on Fort Duquesne. 977 of those men, including 63 officers, had been killed or wounded. George Washington was shot. His had four bullet holes in his jacket. He had a horse shot out from underneath him. He wrote to his brother the next day that the only reason he survived was by divine providence. This is a 23-year-old man who had no concept of what his future was going to hold for him. But it's not enough that George Washington felt that way in a letter. Fifteen years later, he was going to make sure that the colonists who had been promised all this land, that was what they were promised by the, by the English in order to fight in the French-Indian War, he was going to check out the land. Now, typical politics, it took 15 years to get these men 
their land. So he's out checking it out. And word came to him in the fall of 1770 that an Indian chief who had commanded the Indians in the fall of Braddock, which was the war that he fought in, asked to meet him. This Indian stated that he had traveled a long and weary path that I might see the young warrior of the great battle. He went on to explain that he told his men to take aim on the tall and daring warrior, referring to Washington. Let your aim be certain, and he dies. And he goes on to say, "'Twas all in vain. A power mightier far than we shielded him from harm. He cannot die in battle. The great spirit protects that man and guides his destinies. He will become the chief of nations, and a people yet unborn will hail him as the founder of a mighty empire." That story was recounted by Dr. James Craig, who actually, it was taught in, our, in, the public, in the school system about George Washington up until the early 1900s. This was documented. It was historical fact that this story took place. Again, I go back to Scripture. Is there scriptural precedence for God to, to finally intercede to make sure that someone who He had ordained was saved. Daniel 6.23 When Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Daniel 3.27 Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into the furnace that was seven times hotter than usual and when they came out of the fire, the royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not burned their bodies nor was a hair on their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched and there was no smell of fire on them. We now fast forward to the revolution. The revolution, yes, it was started over taxation. But it was more than that. It was about representation. It was about an overbearing government that was trying to force their will upon a people that they believed were free. And the initial document was what? The Declaration of Independence. And in the Declaration of Independence, it says quite clearly, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights. Tragically, and again, I mean this not politically, our President, just two months ago, in multiple speeches, removed from the Declaration of Independence, as he was quoting it, he removed, endowed by their Creator, from that line, endowed by their Creator with certain illegal rights. You see, Satan is not real happy with the United States of America and what we've meant to this world. I mean, take a step back. Could God have used someone? Absolutely. Absolutely, that's God. But what have we done as a country? Has there ever been a country that's done more simply because of their Judeo-Christian philosophy and because of their Judeo-Christian principles? I, I dare you to find one. It is a belief and a fear of God that motivates us. And when I say fear, I mean a reverential fear. A fear without terror. A fear and an understanding that I serve an almighty God. And God is watching me. And God is in control. 
And I will be held accountable someday for the decisions and the actions that I make that you don't know about. It's the only thing that will motivate our leaders and keep them from a moment of self-preservation. As we move forward, we talk about, again, we'll go back to George Washington. And you have to contextually understand how difficult the revolution was. Okay, The British army at that time was the single most powerful army the world had ever known. They were untouchable. And we were a bunch of farmers. We had our guns that we hunted with. We had plowshares. We had hoes. We had, we had no right even contemplating a war with Britain. Yet, this is where it took us. And as the struggle went on, I'm just going to give you a few quotes from letters that these men wrote. George Washington in 1776 wrote, I have scarcely emerged from one difficulty before I have plunged into another. How it will end, God in His goodness will direct. I am thankful for His protection at this time. A few days later, If I shall be able to rise superior to these and many other difficulties which might be enumerated, I shall most religiously believe that the finger of providence is in it. Washington believed that they were fighting for the cause of virtue and mankind. Divine providence would not allow them to fail. I go back to Washington's belief that divine providence was protecting him. It led to his leadership abilities. There are stories told as Washington would charge off into battle. Now, here's the general of the entire colonial army shooting off into battle. You don't do this at those times. But it inspired his men in such a way because Washington believed he was protected. And I think history proves that he was. I mean, how can you argue when you look at the, the, the evidence? In July of 1776... Washington ordered the appointment of a chaplain for each regiment, and he explained to his men in a general order, the blessing and protection of heaven are at all times necessary, but especially so in times of public distress and danger. The general hopes and trusts that every officer and man will endeavor so to act as becomes a Christian soldier defending the dearest rights and liberties of his country. John Hancock wrote, In circumstances as dark as these, it becomes us as men and Christians to reflect that whilst every prudent measure should be taken to ward off the impending judgments, at the same time all confidence must be withheld from the means we used and reposed only on that God rules in the armies of heaven. And without His whole blessing, the best human counsels are but foolishness resolved Thursday the 11th of May, to humble themselves before God under the heavy judgments felt and feared, to confess the sins that have deserved them, to implore the forgiveness of all our transgressions, and a spirit of repentance and reformation, and a blessing on the union of the American colonies in defense of their rights, for which hitherto we desire to thank the Almighty God, that the people of Great Britain and their rulers may have their eyes opened to discern to discern the things that shall make for the peace of the nation, for the redress of America's many grievances, the restoration of all her invaded liberties, and the security to the last generations. It was a proclamation of a day of what they called humiliation and prayer. Fast forward real quick. 
Abraham Lincoln in eight weeks beyond four years in the presidency, so four years and give or take eight weeks, called for more than nine days such as these during the Civil War. He absolutely believed that the only way to win that war was for the entire nation to grasp that they served an almighty God. Sam Adams, on August 1st, 1776, delivered this speech in the State House in Philadelphia. He who made all men hath made the truths necessary to human happiness, obvious to all. Our forefathers opened the Bible to all. We have staked the whole future of American civilization, not upon the power of government, far from it. We've staked the future of all our political institutions upon our capacity to sustain ourselves according to the Ten Commandments. In 1837, John Quincy Adams, at the age of 69, delivered this speech. Why is it that next to the birthday of the Savior of the world, your most joyous and most venerated festival returns on this day, the 4th of July? Is it not that in the chain of human events, the birthday of the nation is indissolubly linked to the birthday of the Savior? That it reforms a leading event in the progress of the gospel dispensation? Is it not the Declaration of Independence first organized the social compact on the foundation of the Redeemer's mission upon the earth, that it laid the cornerstone of human government upon the first precepts of Christianity. These were men who were integral to the founding of our nation. There were people at that time who didn't believe men such as these. They were there, much the same way they're there today. The difference was these men didn't back down from their belief. The difference was they weren't shunned and made to feel embarrassed because they called on the Almighty God. We sit here today as a church and we're afraid to say, you know what? I believe in God. I believe in the Creator of the universe. I believe that God blessed our nation. And it was because we were obedient to him. Thomas Jefferson, in his inaugural address, his second inaugural address, spoke of just this. I actually just went out of order, but I'll do that anyway. Because it's really important to understand that he believed in the parallel between Israel and the United States of America. And what Thomas Jefferson said in this address was that we will need the guidance of divine providence in the same way that Israel needed divine providence and that God blessed this nation. Thomas Jefferson was a deist. He had just come through the revolution. Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence. Thomas Jefferson, even though he believed in a God that wound up the clock and set it on a shelf somewhere, he saw enough that he was not going to shy away from the God of the universe, the creator of the universe. He may not have fully believed it, but he saw things with his own eyes. Where is that today? Where is that today from our leaders? Do we have any leaders? And I'm painting with a very broad brush here. I get that. But where are the leaders that are unashamed of their faith? that stand up and say, I, I serve an almighty God. I get up every day and I start my day on my knees. 
And I look to this book, which was inspired. And it gives me wisdom because I ask for it. Where are those leaders? Why aren't we paying attention to these things as a people? Why do we go through our lives not being active in a process that is a gift from our Creator? There's never been a country in all of humanity that has had a representative republic in the way that we do. That you and I can make a difference. That we can step forward and we can defend our faith. We've done the exact opposite. We've shied away from the challenge. We don't want to offend. We say, well, there's a moral plurality. No, there's not. There is no moral plurality. There is one morality. There is an almighty natural law. This is it. Why are we ashamed? Does that mean we don't love these people? Of course not. Of course we love these people. But the fact remains that we shouldn't compromise our own beliefs and our own values because people might make fun of us. When did that start? It's been that way predominantly my life. Well, I can go back to 1962, the removal of prayer from our school system. That's one place we can start. But it started long before that. A little side note. The, there was a time when law was taught as an absolute. There was an absolute law. And it came from the Scriptures, and that was the moral law. Well, Darwin came along, and he talked about the theory of evolution. It became popular. And do you guys know that most of our colleges and universities were actually founded as religious institutions? I mean, if you go and you read these, it's amazing what their charters actually said. They were, they were created for the furtherance of the gospel and glorification of God. Well, in the 1860s-70s, um, there was a dean appointed to Harvard Law School. And for the first time, someone took the idea of evolution, of Darwinian evolution, and applied it to law. And they said, wait a minute, why is there an absolute law? Men evolve. We change, we grow, we observe. I would argue the exact opposite. I would argue man does not change. I would argue that we are sinful and we are fallen. Why would I argue that? Because that's what that book teaches me. But the fact is, people that don't want to believe that, what do they do? They follow it. Well, wait a minute. The Constitution, well, the Constitution was good 200 years ago. But it doesn't really apply today. But what happened, in, by 1962, this thought process of law had actually evolved and gotten to a place where they were thinking we had judges on the Supreme Court of the United States of America that felt that they didn't have to abide by precedent because things change. And so in 1962, they, vo they ruled that school prayer was unconstitutional. Nowhere in our Constitution does that take place. I would do a show of hands, but I don't want to embarrass anybody. And some of you may look at me and go, well, I do that. Many, many people actually believe that the line, the wall of separation between church and state is in the United States Constitution. If you believe that, don't, don't be embarrassed. But it does not exist in our Constitution. In fact, it was in a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote 
to a group of men. They were called the Danbury Baptists. And what the Danbury Baptists were concerned about was uh, the first um, article of the Constitution, um, which talks about that Congress shall make no laws the establishment of religion. And actually, the first three drafts of that actually weren't religion. It was denomination. Because there were denominational battles going on at that time. Were you Baptist? Were you Lutheran? Were you Catholic? Were you all these? But they all believed in Jesus Christ. It wasn't that. It was just, you know, which denomination was going to win. So they went through this whole process. And the Danbury Baptists were saying to themselves, wait a minute. Who is Congress to talk about the, the rights of man? That they have the right to do this. And, and, Thomas Jefferson wrote back saying, oh, no, 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 no. We've made sure that there's a wall separating church and state. And what he was saying was he was protecting the church, not the government. They took one line out of context, out of a letter written by Thomas Jefferson to defend the church. And they used it as a judgment to remove prayer in our schools. And that set the tone. You had one extreme Supreme Court that had bought into this Darwinian view of the law and we have forever changed our country. And we stand here today reaping the results of that decision. Think about it. Who spends more time with our children? Us or the school system? We, it used to be the school taught morality... This is the New England Primer. It was the textbook used early in all schools up until 1930. Okay, I'm not talking about in the 1700s. Up until the 1930s. And this is how people were taught. And, and the 1900 edition described the impact of the Primer. The New England Primer was one of the greatest books ever published. It went through innumerable editions. It reflected in a marvelous way the spirit of the age that produced it and contributed perhaps more than any other book except the Bible. The molding of those sturdy generations that gave to America its liberty and its institutions. How they taught the alphabet was A is for Adam and the fall. And it went through and it referenced Bible passages. And it talked about the Scriptures. And it talked about morality. And what we would do at home is just reinforce what was being taught. So we would get the kids for a few hours and they would have them for more, and we were just reinforcing it. Now, what we're finding in our society is they have our kids. Make no mistake, they're being indoctrinated. Stop thinking it's okay. It's not okay. Jenny has two mommies. It is not acceptable here. It's not. Okay? We have to not shy away from this. Does that mean we don't love these people? Of course not. Of course not. But don't shy away from the truth. Jenny has two mommies is being taught in our school system today. There are groups of people who are trying to destroy the family. They are utilizing a decision by the Supreme Court to do just that. Why? Because they want to make sure that there is no morality. But here's what happens. When we don't have the overriding natural law, you start to get into a situation, well, now I have to come up with a law, a man-made law, for every, every single possible action. So to give you a, just a quick analogy, I'm in the construction industry. We have 
I remember 14 years ago when I got into this. Contracts were, you know, they were this thick. Well, contracts are now three times that thick. Why? Well, because we live in a society, used to be, how many people remember when you could do, when you could do a business deal on a handshake? It wasn't that long ago. We've got heads being nodded. You could do a business deal on a handshake because you knew there was an overriding moral law. You knew that that would be upheld. No, not today. Not today. I mean, people will lie to your face. They don't care. It's about self-preservation. It's about what's good for them. Okay? And all of this results. So now what happens is we get more and more so the contracts become thicker and thicker because they have to try and account for every single possibility. And you can't do that. It's impossible to do that. It's the same thing with our legal system. Laws are oppressive. I mean, look, we serve a God that, that really gave us a choice. He gives us freedom. I mean, does he have laws? Yes, he absolutely has laws. And, and I heard a great uh, sermon that the laws that God gives us... Let me ask you guys a question. What makes a kite fly? Anybody? What makes a kite fly? Wind. Actually, and that's what I answered, by the way. But actually, it's the string. Because if you just threw a kite up in the wind, it doesn't fly. God's laws are kind of like the string. And you tie them, and it's those strings that hold us back from just taking off, and they give us the tension that allow us to fly. That's what God's laws do. But there really aren't that many of them. There's really not a lot of them. And... Our founders understood why they had a limited government was because they didn't want any man-made institution trying to enforce their laws. Our rights are given to us by God, not by a government. They don't have a right to step in. It's not their place to step in. And that's what they understood. Now, they also knew localized that they had, you know, they were, they were also defending their own selfish interests. I mean, without question, they were, they were 13 sovereign colonies. They didn't want a federal government stepping in, and that's why the Constitution is so limited. Well, and, and that's being ignored today, but the intent of the Constitution is to allow us here locally to make those decisions. What does our community need? You think they know 3,000 miles away what's best for the hungry of Gilbert and Chandler? Why would they do that? Why would they want to control that? Anybody? You ever think about these things? What purpose does that serve? So let me get this straight. I'm going to give, I got a guy that's hungry right here. But in order to help him, I need to take my dollar and I need to send it someplace else. It's going to go through a process and it's going to come back, at best case, 25 cents on the dollar once it's gone through the system. Or I could just give him the buck. What makes more sense? But I'm going to go back. We fight not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in heavenly places. Do you not think the United States of America is in the midst of a spiritual battle? Do we think that this ended at some point? That Satan gave up? That Satan looked at it and he said, you know, they're good. That's fine. Satan hates us. Grasp that. He wants to destroy everything we are. And how does he do it? Well, he eliminates God, for one, which you can't convince me that our society hasn't pretty much eliminated God. Every study out there basically shows that there is no difference between the churched and the unchurched. We behave the same way. We act the same way. We do the same things. The question becomes, what are we, we going to do? 
in Jeremiah 15, 19, God states, If you repent, I will restore you that you may serve me. If you utter worthy, not worthless words, you will be my spokesman. Second Chronicles 7.14 If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. This battle is not ours. We cannot win it. But God can. You're going to hear, and I'm sure you know them, you hear words like electability. Words like electability. My God doesn't deal with electability. Was David electable? I mean, was David, when he went out and faced Goliath, was David the guy that was like, oh, David, David will go get the Goliath. Go get him, David. No, he was mocked. It was a joke. David didn't care. He's like, God's here. No, I'm good. So he went out and he killed Goliath. Boom. Because he had that sort of faith. Scripture is full. Hezekiah, Jehoshaphat, Asa. People that went into situations that, that they had no right going into. But they believed so much in God that they went in and God handed them victory. The Israelites. Caleb. I mean, there's a guy. So, as we wrap this thing up, I'm going to press on you guys and ask you to just pray about this. Look, if God's not pressing on you to get involved in this sort of stuff, fine. Fine. I I understand. God, we're all part of a body. We all have different roles. We all have different needs. But you have got to ask yourself, if you were created, if you were given this opportunity to, to have a country here on earth that reflected God, wouldn't you want to take it? Wouldn't you want to show up in heaven and have everybody go, fantastic! Look what they did. They stood up to Satan and they said, no. No, because my God is mightier and my God will save. You can be a part of that generation. You can be a part of a story that they tell throughout the halls of heaven. I believe that. Because that's what my scripture tells me. Don't believe Brett. Believe the scripture. But you have to make a decision. What God do you serve? The scriptures say that there will come a time that we believe in a form of godliness, but not believe in its power. I believe we are in that time. I think that when you've got 80 some odd percent of the country, depending on the statistics you look at, stating that they're Christian and we're in the situation that we're in, then we have a bunch of people that believe in a lowercase g God. I don't believe in that God. I believe in the God of, of the Word. I believe in the God of the Scriptures. I believe in the God that would rejoice in a people that stood up and were the watchmen for His kingdom. That stood up and said, this goes no further on my watch. And I will turn off the television. I will read the papers. I will do the things I hate to do because no one likes it. Okay? <laughs> Newsflash. I don't like it. If I could just be a soccer dad and that would be all I would do, I would. But I'm scared to death for the souls that will be lost because the United States of America has fallen. Just think about these things. Pray about these things. 
And as we come into an election cycle, I'm not telling you where to go, what to do. But at least hold up the litmus test. Look at a man's character. Look at a man's morality. Say, God, give me discernment about these people. Let me know who is sincerely serving you because they're going to talk about electability. They will. And that means compromise. And our God does not compromise. So guys, I hope I didn't bore you to death tonight. I sincerely hope. Um, it's a lot, and I didn't even get to most of it. You know, my wife warned me about this. This is a passion of mine. I, I get it. But, but I sincerely believe what I talked to you about tonight. I can give you so much more information. If anybody's interested, um, I'd be more than happy. But we were without question blessed by God. He's turned away. We've shunned him. We're embarrassed of him. There's people starving in our streets. And, and I don't want to be a part of that anymore. I don't know about you guys, but we have a chance. So, so why don't we take that chance? Pray with me, please. Father God, we come before you, a nation that, and a people that is at war. And it's a war we, we can't see, and it's a war we don't understand fully. But your scripture is incredibly clear that you are victorious, that you are the God of all. And if we, your people, would just take our relationship with you seriously and realize that oftentimes serving you means doing the things we don't really want to do. But God, we can be a part of a story. We can be a part of an epic. A story that's told generations from now about the people of the Oasis that stood up and said, No more. My God is too great. My God is too wonderful. I will not be silent anymore. I will not stand in the background. And if we don't win this one, we'll win the next one. If we don't win the next one, we will continue to fight until the day we draw no more breath. You are our God and you are so amazing. And Lord, we ask for the courage and the strength to do these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.